Welcome to Classical Education, a podcast for those who believe in rediscovering the art of asking questions, engaging in conversation, and attending to the ideas at the heart of well-ordered teaching and learning. I invite you to join me on a journey in pursuit of the true, the good, and the beautiful as a participant in the great conversation and listen to the many voices coming from the world of classical education. everyone. Welcome to Classical Education Podcast. This is Brian Fries. Wanted to let you know Adrian will be taking a break and we will be rebroadcasting some of her favorite and your favorite podcasts from last year. So make sure you have a pen and paper handy. Don't forget to take some notes. We hope you enjoy them. In this episode, Adrian and I are so excited to welcome a group of educators to take part in a panel discussing their experience teaching from the works of the Greek biographer and essayist Mestrius Plutarchus, commonly known as Plutarch. Adrian, you've put together a really wonderful group of educators here, and I wonder if you could just talk to our audience a bit about uh, who you've invited to the show here and uh, what inspired you to plan an episode all about Plutarch. Oh, that's a great question. Um yeah, I, I actually put a, uh, a note out on our Facebook group, a shout out at, with a, a survey asking people if they had taught Plutarch. And I wanted a various panel of people from different experiences teaching Plutarch, because I think uh, his his works are very important for students to read and be um, exposed to. Um, so I, I just said, if you want to be on the podcast, email me. And I got emails from people. And so here we are. And I'm really excited because I think we have a really nice variety of people with different experiences teaching Plutarch from homeschool to high school classrooms and to homeschool, uh, elementary and middle school um, experiences. So I think we've got a really nice variety here. Um, I would like to share a little bit of my experience with Plutarch and I guess probably why I'm really passionate about the importance of Plutarch being um, included in curriculum in classical schools. Um, I had never heard of Plutarch until I started homeschooling and, you know, using Ambleside online. And um, my daughter was around 11 or 12. And I picked, I said, okay, we're going to start Plutarch. And I, and I sat down, she had been reading, you know, good literature for many years because we had been using Ambleside online. And I started reading Plutarch out loud to her and I didn't pre-read it, but I was just the whole time I was reading it out loud to her. I was like, I have no idea what I'm reading. It doesn't make any sense to me. And by the time I got to the end of the first sentence, which was probably on the second page, <laughs> I asked her for a narration and she did it. And when she narrated it, I actually understood what I had just read and I was blown away. And I was like, wow, okay exposing kids to really good literature and having them narrate for several years and then reading Plutarch, it works. So uh, I think that really sold me on the importance of reading Plutarch and, and that young people, you know, under the age of 15 can do it. And especially if they've been exposed to good literature. And so, so that was really exciting to me. And then, um, 
And then when I started working for the charter schools and writing a humanities curriculum, um, I included Themistocles in the middle school's sixth, it was a sixth through eighth grade humanities. And um, it was it was an interesting experience because most of the teachers hadn't even heard of Plutarch. Um, and the feedback we got from it was that they couldn't do it. Um, it was it was very disappointing. And I had several teachers say to me, these kids haven't even heard of Beatrix Potter or they don't even know Aesop's fables. So we're going to, we're going to replace Plutarch with Aesop's fables and Beatrix Potter. Sure. <laughs> this is middle school. So I was really taken aback with the, I, I guess that really gave me a strong awareness of what's going on in the education in our country, because Plutarch used to be a normal book for students to read in middle school. I mean, my grandparents read it, he right. would have been in the he would have been part of the curriculum of the school. And well, it sounds like those were some wise teachers who knew they needed to do some preliminary work and introduce their students to some things that would help lay a lay a foundation for them so that they could then approach Plutarch. And we'd like to encourage folks with the truth that you can read Plutarch. And I and I imagine that our panelists here will will give the same sort of encouragement. Yeah, I, I agree. And um, I, I we've said before, Trey, and it's probably been on the podcast before, um, but going ahead in the beginning of the school year reading Aesop's fables <laughs> is a good idea. Uh, that's the beginning of the progymnismata, which is uh, classical writing. And a lot of students haven't, haven't had that. And it really does lay a good foundation for kids to learn how to think in a very fun and simple way. Um, but yeah, Plutarch, I think, is a really... Um, important author for our students. And um, I want to hear from our guests because I think it will encourage our audience of perhaps um, parents who feel intimidated by Plutarch as I did, or mm -hmm. um, teachers who feel intimidated, or headmasters who haven't even considered putting Plutarch on the curriculum map for their school. Um, so I you know, as classical educators, we believe in a rigorous education and rigorous doesn't necessarily mean that it's unenjoyable, but that we are reading things that challenge us. And I think Plutarch fits into that category very nicely. And his, his works are beautiful, beautifully done. He's a very good writer and important history, very important history. I think he's a, he's, he writes in a literary way and gives us history through literature, which I think is also really important teaching history. So okay. what I'd like to do is start with um, Philip Schaefer and have him introduce himself and tell us a little bit about how, uh, how you approach Plutarch in the classroom. And maybe if you happen to have a story of something you could share from your experience in the classroom, we'd like to hear that as well. Um, yeah, I'm Philip Schaefer. I've taught Plutarch for about 10 years. Um, mostly wherever I could wedge him into whatever I, I taught, um, be it rhetoric or law. I, I don't know that I ever worked him into logic, but various history classes, Latin especially. Um, I guess probably the best story I have regarding Plutarch and my students is uh, I had them do a Latin translation of Solon's interaction of Croesus, that famous story, and just the students being kind of uh, 
on edge with three a three-part translation, just constantly wondering what's going to happen, how is Kreese going to treat Solon, and when they finally get to the end of it and see um, that final interaction, just all being blown away and amazed. Was this in a Latin class uh, that you were teaching in which uh, did the students have any any background knowledge of what they were translating either through no. your class or through a history class? No, it was a seventh, eighth grade Latin class um, and they didn't have any background. Um, and I, I maybe gave them a little bit of background on who Solon was prior, but just the story itself can be pulled out of Plutarch so nicely and it's so nice and self-contained that they were able to just work their way through it and understand it without having all the historical context. I, I, they didn't know that Croesus was, you know, the king of the Lydian Empire or anything like that, or um, Solon is the great lawgiver of Athens. I, I would love to know why you selected him for Latin translations. Because Plutarch, well, first, because Plutarch's awesome. Um, but then, too, because Plutarch lends himself so well to moral instruction, which is so important in classical education. I mean, even in a Latin class, you're, you're trying to do some type of moral instruction in Plutarch's stories really lend themselves well to that. Um, th I mean, those are my principal reasons for, I also, I wasn't working out of a Latin textbook with my students at that point in time. So I was writing all my own material. So I wanted to integrate both history and kind of that moral element into the Latin class. And Plutarch just lends himself so well to that. And Plutarch is probably my favorite author. Yeah. I wonder, Philip, could you just take us back to, if you can recall your first interaction with Plutarch, clearly at some point he made an impression on you that would make you want to bring him into your classroom, writing your own curriculum. Do you remember that first that first interaction or that first moment where you said, this is something I need to preserve and conserve for my students? Well, I do. I actually got two interactions. The first is pretty anticlimactic. I think when I was in sixth grade, I, I read Plutarch's name mentioned in a Louisville Mar book or something like that as one of the guys this character is reading. Um, so I picked up a little one volume, Plutarch's Life of Alexander, tried reading it, just couldn't couldn't do it um, for whatever reason. And then later on in college, one of my professors taught a seminar on Plutarch, a semester long class. And that was really where I came to love Plutarch, just working through the lives, uh, nearly all of them kind of systematically, um, just running into the characters, encountering them, kind of wrestling with them. And of course, Plutarch's, his lives of the characters are so moving that they just really captivate you. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. Okay, Dawn, would you go ahead and share your story? Sure. My name is Dawn Garrett, and I am a homeschool mom, and I have three currently high schoolers. We started Plutarch when my oldest was 10 with just my oldest, and then as everybody got to be 10, um, we did that because that's when Ambleside Online recommends it, and that's the curriculum we follow. And... Um, as we were doing Plutarch, um, we I think I did Publicolith like three times in a row, back to back to back, because the third time I did it with a co-op. Um, at my church, we have a homeschool co-op, and I said, I'll teach Plutarch. You know, I, I do not have the background that Philip has, obviously. Um, I'd never heard of Plutarch before I was homeschooling, um, but Ann White makes guides, and I use her guides, um, and they help me to you know, follow the story, know what's going on. They expurgate, I think is the word that Charlotte Mason uses, some parts of the story that maybe are a little bit more controversial for younger students. But um, 
so I teach right now. I have a class of about 10 kids from nine years old to 17. My oldest is 17 and she's the oldest in the class. And we just finished, um, last week, we just finished Themistocles and thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, and a we were reading Themistocles. He actually runs away from Athens. He's, he's accused of being a traitor to Athens. Um, he runs away, they're chasing him, and he decides, well, if they think I'm a traitor anyway, I might as well go to um, Xerxes in Persia, and he does, and he befriends him, he ingratiates himself to, to Xerxes, um, but we found a lot of connections and similarities in the Persian court with the book of Esther in the Bible, and so we were really talking about how, you know, Esther says, if I go before the king, um, and he doesn't reach out his golden scepter, I'm going to be killed. Um, and Themistocles says, I'm not even going to tell him my name, just present me to the king. Um, and so we compared and contrasted kind of those ideas um, a little bit. And that was, it, it was helpful for understanding Themistocles, and it was helpful for understanding the scriptures. And um, it, was, mm -hmm. it was just a kind of a fun class to have. So that, that was my big story recently with Plutarch. Yeah. Well, it sounds like as a homeschooler or homeschooling uh, mother, you were in, in many ways just trusting the, the wisdom of Charlotte Mason and those that have put together the, the curriculum uh, through Ambleside Online, trusting them when they say this, this is worth your time and it's worth your time at this point in your child's life. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people recommend starting with Publicola, which is why we started there. Um, Ann White actually has a guide of just Publicola. And she says, um, she has an essay at the beginning, is Plutarch hard? Um, and she goes through these things. And the last line, she says, like senior chemistry, if nobody tells you it's supposed to be impossible, maybe it won't be. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh and I just, I grabbed hold of that idea. I said, okay, it's not impossible. So we can figure this out. Um, when my oldest figured it out, she realized that Plutarch himself is a little snarky sometimes. Like he, he injects his opinion. And when yeah. we find those things, it like gives energy to everybody. Um, so that, that really helps too, knowing that he has, he has a little bit of opinion presenting from time to time. And we kind of look forward to that. Don, I have a question. Um, I know we had asked Ann White to be on today and she mm -hmm. wasn't able to come. Can you tell us a little bit more about her guides, how they helped you? And do you think they would be helpful for classroom teachers? I know that she's a homeschooler and as a homeschooler, I'm just curious what your thoughts are. Well, um, my experience is that I use them in a co-op, so that's sort of a classroom. So I think, yes, they could be very helpful in a classroom setting. Um, she has done amazing work. I have sitting here next to me seven complete volumes, plus um, the primer that I was talking about, plus she has a book called The Practical Plutarch, which I only have an arc of, um, and what she does is she breaks it apart each life apart into 12 or so lessons. Um, and so we do a lesson a week and then she even breaks it down further. So you have two or three subsets within a lesson. 
Um, she gives you some narration prompts. She gives you some background. She gives you some vocabulary, um, geography tips of, you know, what kind of places you're going to be looking for. And I definitely recommend, especially for lives like Alexander or Themistocles, having a map so you can find all the places. But she gives you all of the helps to make it really not impossible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds very ideal for a humanities cl- class, for a teacher mm-hmm. who's teaching humanities, mm-hmm. um, because they can cover uh, the geography and vocabulary, literature, history, all in one. Yeah. In one. We've been doing Plutarch for a long time. And so like, I've tried to fold in my new students. I mean, nine-year-olds come into my class. And so I try to fold them in gently. But I also have a 17-year-old who loves Plutarch and has been doing it for what, eight, nine years now. Um, so we don't always go through like all of the vocabulary that she points out. A lot of that can be picked up through context as we go. But at the beginning, we definitely used like some of the some of the older ways of saying things. She kind of redefines for us or, or, or explains for us so we can understand. Maybe I can find an example. Um, well, she defines surname, so that's not necessarily a term that we always use, um, but, um, here's one, in very tickled terms, um, that's not, like, phraseology that we use in 21st century America, um, so she says it's in a very precarious situation. Now, now that in, in very tickled terms, is pretty clear to us because we've been reading Plutarch for so long. But sometimes at the beginning, those little kind of redefinitions helped us a lot. Yeah, I think I I agree with you. Um, When I did Plutarch with my kids, um, I didn't have Anne Guide Whites. They weren't available at the time. Um, but I did follow the method that Charlotte Mason recommended, which was to mm-hmm. give a few vocabulary words ahead of time, look at the map, mm-hmm. discuss the location, because it does help a lot mm-hmm. to have a little bit of that context. And it helps them to make the connections. So, okay, sure. Lisa, would you go ahead and share uh, your experience and tell us about yourself? Sure. Um, I also am a homeschool mom and have been homeschooling for, I guess, about 15 years or so. We have had a co-op for about the same amount of time. And when Classical Academic Press uh, came out with school aid groups, we decided to be a school aid group as well. So, and then now I am um, helping to, I'm the director of the school aid groups for the the, the global um, groups. So, uh, so that's kind of my a little bit of my background. And so when we started teaching Plutarch, we have a very humanities-based co-op um, based group and several ages. And part of what we try to do is include as many ages as we can together that makes sense so that they're all part of the same great conversation. And when so when we taught it, I taught our high schoolers and our middle schoolers together. I gave them two different texts. We ended up, and I know there's, you know, division on retellings, but, um, and not using primary source texts, but we gave our younger students, the young folks Plutarch, the Rosalie Kaufman. So we read through the entire thing. 
Um, they didn't, and I believe it's really well written. We enjoyed it quite a bit. And then of course, our high schoolers had primary source text. So uh, we combined them all together and we all practiced close reading. So all of those things that you're talking about, Dawn, with the vocabulary and quotes and things that they um, wonder about as they're reading through, they have they had notated those things. So when vocabulary came up, one of the things that we would talk about is, okay, what things did you highlight in pink? Because that's the color we choose for vocabulary. So we would discuss those things. We would discuss their wonder questions. So all of those things were already pulled out and extracted, you know, by their own wonder. And that way they were all able to participate on the same level together and learn from each other. So, you know, they, the younger ones had the older as the model and, um, they and the younger ones had, you know, were able to contribute just as much wonder as the older students. So they really, really felt enfolded into the conversation, and it wasn't overly difficult for them. They really loved it. And like Don was saying, you know, he is very snarky at times, and they just appreciated that so very much. It did bring a lot of liveliness to the conversation. Um, you know, there are a lot of different things that aren't part of our culture. And they really appreciated hearing those things, you know, like Pericles. I mean, Pericles was was really interesting and, you know, um, had some interesting, without giving anything away, of course, you know, it's not a spoiler if it's that old, right? But, you know, <laughs> he was a very unique individual and had some very unique um, physical characteristics. And so they really appreciated his uniqueness as an individual and um, it really brought them some security in their own selves. So, you know, all of those issues that all of those points that we're talking about goodness and virtue and um, they really appreciate those things. And one of the things that was important for us and we're seeing the value going forward is as they're reading through, we use uh, the Roman roads, a Western culture series for our high school and try to kind of reflect that in some way with our younger students. So they had had a little bit of a foundation. So now as they're reading through their humanities program and also we do some, um, some civics and we're using Russell Kirk's uh, Roots of American Order as the spine. And so as they're reading through Roots of American Order, they're like, oh, we know who he is and we know who he is and we know their story. And so it made perfect sense for them and made his text as well, not hard, you know. So that's a little bit of the background and the value that we're seeing as it just carries forward from, I mean, and they, these ninth graders that are reading Roots this year, they did this two years ago and they're recalling all of this. So and they read the, and they read the retelling. They read Rosalie Kaufman's version. So, I, in my view, um, if you are trying to do that sort of thing as a group all together, and you would like to give the younger students something a little bit more approachable, and it also doesn't have some of the um, licentiousness that uh, the original source text does. So you can hand it to them without having to filter it. Because there are some things that um, you might not want your third or fourth grader to come across, you know, <laughs> in certain circumstances. So, um, or it might go over their heads, it would probably be fine. But 
anyway, I just wanted to make mention of Rosalie Kaufman's um, version and that it was beautiful and very well received by our students. Okay. Dawn, have you used that version at all? No, we jumped in just straight in with what Anne has done. She does cut out some of those licentious things, um, I think. Um, and sometimes she like cuts out for length just because sometimes Plutarch mm -hmm. can go on, I think. But um, I, I, I've seen mention of several retellings, but we haven't used any of those. Okay. All right, Peach, you're up. So um, <clears throat> I have also been a homeschooling mother, although at this point, my children have long graduated college. So they were homeschooled from the beginning all the way through. And I have also taught both at schools and in homeschool co-ops and in tutoring. I have run Scholae-like, not Scholae, but Scholae-like groups internationally, especially in England and in military bases. And uh, so I've been teaching Plutarch for a very long time, but I actually grew up with Plutarch. So unlike some that say, I've never heard of it. Um, I got Plutarch as a child. I was homeschooled before it was a term. So it wasn't even legal at the time that we were doing it. So we were moving around all the time. Um, and generally speaking, when somebody would say, all right, we're, we're flying out tomorrow, we knew, aha, okay, they're checking in <laughs> to see if we're going to school. And um, we had, um, I think I was five or six, we had a book called The Children's Plutarch. And for us, these stories were just the greatest fun. I remember there was one story called Up the Scaling Ladders. Uh, it's about Aratus. And we would act it out. I remember playing it. We would get the ladders. It was this great wall at the back of our house in England, and we'd be hanging behind it and just waiting for the soldiers to pass. But what we particularly did was, because we traveled a great deal, we would have these stories. We'd go over specific lines, and this is entirely child-led. There was no parent telling us to do this. And in this one particular story, there was a line, I still remember it by heart, um, a tyrant is a ruler who does what he wills and takes no heed of the wishes of the people. And we would discuss this. What does that mean? What does a tyrant look like? And we decided what a tyrant was based on the stories of Plutarch. So Plutarch was actually incredibly uh, formative to us as children without it being part of any formal curriculum at all. We loved these stories. Uh, the uh, Yesterday's Classics came out with it again. I actually had that, my original book that I read to my children when they were little, because to them, this was bedtime stories. It was not something that was part of a formal curriculum. So by the time they were four, five, six years old, um, they were reading these stories and discussing uh, all the different elements that are in there, it's particularly when it comes to character, virtue, uh, these these angles. Um, and uh, the, the Children's Plutarch is, is by Gould, by the way, that translation. And I, I love it. I think it's great. It can be introduced at very young ages because of the way it's presented and how, how, um, how accessible it is. Over the years, I've also used uh, Weston's translation. It's called Plutarch's Lies for Boys and Girls, which I think is better for middle school. 
uh, particularly students that have had no background in the more advanced language. I don't think that uh, many of the students that uh, I've encountered were ready for full-on Plutarch. They just couldn't have handled it. So, you know, if they had never heard anything, maybe start with with uh, the uh, various little stories, or he said Beatrix Potter earlier, you know, Aesop's fables. Uh, but the Plutarch's Lies of Boys and Girls made it fairly approachable quite quickly. Um, but I've really been teaching it to high school quite a bit. And, um, you know, I like uh, Klaus, A.H. Klaus, which is available on, on Gutenberg. I teach a lot of students that um, don't have access to libraries as readily or have funds for materials. And uh, so having it online is, is very, very helpful. And I find it in some ways, you know, I know it's controversial talking about translations, but um, I, I find it easier to introduce to high school students that may or may not have had that, you know, uh, that, that background, but it still has the rigor that I'm looking for. And uh, when I teach Plutarch, I would have to say in the high school, I really integrate it on so many levels. I mean, right now we're actually going through Pericles and um, there's a quote very right at the beginning um, where Caesar says he's looking at these wealthy strangers in Rome, carrying puppy dogs and monkeys. And he asks, aren't they used to having children? You know, you know and he brings this up. And of course, you know, I'm at a Catholic group. And I immediately said, well, what did Pope Francis recently say? So we're, we're integrating all of these, these different levels and even the sciences. Uh, there is a, a section in which, um, in which uh, again, this is also in, in, in Pericles speaking on, uh, this is after, uh, you know, he, he speaks about virtue and so on. And it's on who is right and who is wrong. Is it the philosopher or the diviner? One is detecting the cause of the event and the other, the, the end for which it's designed. So again, that's, this is science. And I'll bring in St. John Paul II. Science can purify religion from error and superstition and religion can purify science from idolatry and false absolutes. So really integrating this on, on multiple levels. I'm the... Uh, the curriculum coordinator and a teacher at Koinonia Academy in New Jersey, which I'm turning into a, a classical school, beautiful, wonderful uh, Catholic school that just recently decided to make this switch. And um, just seeing the excitement, you know, you said, you know, um, you know, a story that's happened, just seeing the excitement of that level of integration when students realize how, the one connects with another and connects with another. It's it's really beautiful to see. Just last Tuesday, we had a moment in class, uh, not at KA, with a, another group that I'm teaching, where right now they're doing biology, ancient history, uh, philosophy, and ancient literature all at once. And there was this moment in class where we actually had to take a break because everyone was so overwhelmed. It was that light bulb moment where it all came together, studying biology and the origin of, of life, studying philosophy and looking at the different thoughts from 
Aristotle, and then in literature, reading about Pericles, and, you know, understanding from history, okay, this is precisely what happened, here's the map, how it all came together, and the students were literally standing up and walking around with excitement, how it all clicked, it had all come together, all of these stories, and it happened um, as we came to the the section um, in in um, in in the story where Pericles is uh, talking about handling criticism, and he talks about origins, and it was just this click moment of wait a minute, they realized okay these are the people we've been studying, this is how they look, this is how they're dressed, this is the physical location, uh, this is what they knew in terms of science, this is what they were thinking in terms of philosophy. And so Plutarch just helped bring it all together. It was that thread that drew it together. And that's what I love about Plutarch is all of this coming together. Mm -hmm. Speaking of bringing everything together, Peach, you and, and the other guests here have all said something about a moment when either the, the student falls in love with Plutarch himself or is caught up in the rapture of some idea that Plutarch is presenting or finds some immediate, just very human connection between their own lives and the lives being presented in the works of Plutarch. I think we all love the very beautiful description that you put forward of Plutarch in the home. And I think we would all agree that ideally uh, you are introducing uh, children to Plutarch in the home in such a way as it did for you informs their play and just sort of fertilizes their imagination. So if and when they come across him in school, uh, this is something that's just already there and they're already in conversation in a very tangible way because as you said, it informs the way children play uh, in the home and in their own backyards. And then you also talked about bringing in the church, right? And you were speaking specifically from a Catholic perspective and how you were able to draw those connections between some of the, the morals and ethical uh, issues that, that Plutarch is engaging with and what the church teaches. And one of the things that Adrian and I have said consistently over the course of our conversations with our guests is how important it is that the home and the school and the church are all working together uh, almost like pistons in an engine, right? They all need to be firing uh, in the right order and at the right time. Absolutely. And so I'd love to hear more about that. Um, thank you for sharing uh, particularly uh, your experience with Plutarch in the home. And I wonder for those of us who, who did not benefit from that, I wonder how we could perhaps bring Plutarch and introduce him into the the way we talk to parents about working together with, with the school. But also, I'd love to hear some comments from everyone about maybe how they've seen Plutarch being brought into the life of the faculty as well. And I'm thinking specifically of, of some of his essays, some of his uh, moralia or ethical essays, which oftentimes will speak directly to pedagogy or the role of the teacher or the role of the student. Oh, Trey, I'm so glad you asked that. I didn't even think to ask that. And I'm usually the practical one that wants to know, how do we get this to the teachers and parents? Well, I'm, but, I'm trying to 
learn from you little by little, Adrian. No, this is great. I, I think this is important. If any of you guys have read any of his, like, I love Moralia. I think it's a wonderful, um, it does have a lot of pedagogy. Um, and there's an essay, I believe it's in Moralia, about how to be a listener of lectures. And I love it. It's so it's so well written and it's not long and it teaches you how to be a good listener. Um, so yeah, if any of you guys have experience with those and I, I agree, Trey, we, it would be wonderful to get some of those essays into the hands of teachers and headmasters. Anybody have experience with that? So, um, because I'm the curriculum coordinator at my school, what I have done is Again, introduce it in small bites, just because this is so new. So what I've done is I have given the teachers that are teaching specifically ancients in that year, uh, excerpts from that children's Plutarch or the uh, Plutarch's lives, and then set snippets. So just for example, do you know the how a young man ought to hear poetry? Mm -hmm. You know, just a small section like that as a discussion topic. Um, another one, you know, how to recognize progress in virtue, because virtue is something that is of great importance. At our school, we have a monthly virtue that's posted. Um, we actually use the virtues from the Dominicans. The, they have a, Dominican sisters have a program. So we, we utilize that, but fund, fundamentally, as a Catholic school, our purpose is to support the parents as primary educators. We're not the primary educators, the parents are. And so our goal is to support the parents, not replace them. And so, you know, vice and virtue, progress and virtue, all of these, I believe, are wonderful in actually helping the teachers help the parents in that regard. So it's more of giving a snippet, let's use it with this, aligning it with the virtue we're already doing or whatever the progress is or concept is for that month. Um, so that's how I've been using it. Okay. Yeah, I, he has a theory on an essay on education early on in the Moralia that's really good. I don't know that I've ever used it, but the lives themselves contain so many vignettes and comments on education that those can, and I have used those well with fellow faculty and even with the students too. Um, one of the things that we don't often appreciate about Plutarch is that they're not biographies or histories in the way that we typically think of them. And he says as much in his introduction to the life of Alexander. They're more, they're more than that, really. And so you get in all the lies these little comments on education or kind of access to virtue, how, how humans interact with virtue and the like, um, that all pull out and are used really well as kind of a prompting for conversation or just as something to deal with on its own. I think about the life of Pericles where he starts by mentioning how virtue unlike everything else really inspires in the viewer a desire to emulate and replicate that virtue. That, that's a great thing to bring up in faculty or even to students as a reminder of one's own conduct and how others perceive it. Mm -hmm. Philip, I would like to ask you a few more questions. Um, I've worked with a lot of teachers and they're given, you know, book lists, they're given, they're told by their headmaster, this is what you have to cover this year. And so if we have a teacher here listening and Plutarch isn't on their book list and uh, they are inspired and would like to incorporate Plutarch, I, I'm curious 
did you have to get permission like from your headmaster to incorporate Plutarch and were other teachers familiar with and using Plutarch in the classroom? Um, no, but I kind of got started in the wild, wild west of education where there wasn't a whole lot of administrative structure to kind of give booklets and the like. Um, I don't know that any, anywhere I've been, there's been a great appreciation of Plutarch. I've always brought that with me and tried to inculcate that in my fellow faculty. But really, um, Plutarch can be used in so many places. If you're doing literature and you're doing Shakespeare, you can do the Roman trilogies. And that's a great access to Plutarch, right? His life of Coriolanus, his life of Caesar, those are direct draws from for Shakespeare, for the plays themselves. Um, yeah, I, I would really like, um, especially our listeners who are starting new classical schools, <laughs> to really um, put forth the effort to make sure to get Plutarch into the uh, curriculum maps for this program for your school. Um, because I, I think that, I think that his work is a, I, my experience with classical schools is that Plutarch is missing. And I think that's a tragedy, honestly, that he's missing out of a lot of curriculum um, programs at schools. Um, so I, I, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have this podcast was I wanted, I mean, this particular episode, I want teachers, parents, headmasters to hear that Plutarch is really important and, and to really think strongly about how you can include him in your program. Um, um, there was something else I was going to ask you, Philip. He goes well in writing curriculum as well, of course. You can you can do so much in the Progen Misfato with Plutarch. Um, That's true. You can, do, you can do narration with Plutarch really well. Um, you can do rewritings on some of the episodes from the stories really well. He, he will fit almost anywhere. Um, I mean, you can even kind of wedge him into physics when you're talking about the siege of Syracuse um, yeah. and some of the kind of odd things that's going on there. Um, yeah, I, in fact, it's funny you brought up, that's what I was going to bring up, was that you brought up Shakespeare and um, Peach, I think you did too, or at least you made me think of Shakespeare. So we have it in our mind that classical schools should be studying Shakespeare. Why don't we have it in our mind that classical schools should be studying Plutarch? To me, Plutarch and Shakespeare go hand in hand. So I was really happy to hear you bring that up. Um, it reminded me, Peach, your story reminded me of Mendelssohn. And so Mendelssohn, if you listen to the Classics for Kids program, it's a wonderful program. His story about um, writing the Midsummer Night's Dream. And that when he and his sister were children, they used to play and act out the Midsummer Night's Dream, which is exactly what you did with Plutarch. And I feel like Plutarch and Shakespeare both lend themselves to that nature of children to want to play and act out. And so I love that you experienced Plutarch when you were little. And I'm like thinking, oh, I have a grandson who's almost four. And I'm thinking, oh, I want my son-in-law to read children's Plutarch to him. Cause I know he would, he and my two-year-old uh, granddaughter would probably start acting out some of it. I, I think you're right. I mean, you actually mentioned music. My, my children are very musical. My daughter's a concert pianist. My husband's a musician and, you know, really without trying. And I think that's part of the beauty of classical education, especially Charlotte Mason. It's just so natural when they played it, when my children were playing it, they had music. We wrote it. We 
used it for grammar. We, you know, incorporated all these different things because, of course, if you're five years old and you're going to be scaling the walls, you have to have the right music to go with it. You know, so right. you know, it was. Um, you just learn so much when it's it's all integrated and um, it's mm. truly beautiful. Mm -hmm. If I if I could jump in here for a moment, just thinking back to this idea of, well, what if, what if Plutarch is not in the curriculum or not a part of the book list? Well, so what, you know? I mean, if, if, you're, if you're a teacher and all you do is follow the program as it's laid out and you're not reading at home and you're not engaging in, you know, the pursuit of knowledge yourself and then bringing that freshly lit uh, fire into the classroom, if you're just, if you're just mechanically following a program, well, I, I think you should consider a different profession, um, perhaps attune your ear to your vocation. And so I just want to encourage the teachers who are listening, homeschool moms and dads, you know, they can fortunately uh, take charge of their children's education and bring this in. And I would say, you know, odds are, I think it would take a very, a very uh, twisted administrator, if, if a teacher comes to that person and says, I, I've been reading this and I, it would fit so well, I need to bring this in, if that person would say no, I think they'd be delighted that their teachers are reading. And I think yeah. that would just thrill them that, that they're bringing that <clears throat> into the classroom. And so, yeah, fit it in, uh, you know, bring it in. It's, it's the great conversation, right? So bring in these conversation partners into your science classroom, uh, into your history classroom, into your math classroom, right? And, and in so doing, I think the students will be more likely to reach that moment where they do fall in love with, with Plutarch or with the ideas he's presenting with these stories. Mm -hmm. We have a teacher at Koinonia. Um, she's a JD from Notre Dame. She's a brilliant, wonderful teacher, um, uh, Becky Marchinda. And she actually said almost just that at our uh, parent meeting, where she said, I am learning and working reading more now almost than when I was doing my law degree and the excitement of learning and reading and then interacting with other teachers to bring it in. I think that's the part, another part of the beauty of, of a classical curriculum is that encouragement to, to learn and to explore and to bring it in. And in every facet, uh, I teach science, uh, quite a lot of science and it fits in every subject, whether it's science or math, it's it's uh it's incredible. Mm -hmm. And let's just say worst. Let's just play this out. Worst case scenario, uh, you're a teacher. You bring this before uh, your administrator, and they say, "No, sorry, you know, uh, closed can in here. You know, the curriculum is what it is. Uh, just 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 plug along." Well, guess what? Everyone's getting for Christmas before they leave for the break. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, this may get me in some trouble, but uh, I mean, at the end of the day, it's the teacher who has to stand in judgment before God. And I, I say, I say, uh, I say, give them their, their, you know, what, what, what they rightly, I mean, it's their inheritance. Oh, I love that. I love that. Don and Lisa, do you guys have anything to say into, you guys have been quiet. <laughs> I actually have a question, maybe Philip or, or you, Adrian or Peach. Um, Plutarch wrote parallel lives of Greeks and Romans. So he chose a Greek and he chose a Roman to write about. Um, and then to compare back and forth. Ambleside Online does not do the parallel lives as parallels. So you don't necessarily 
We did read Cicero and Demosthenes in the same year, for example, but you do not necessarily read them like that. Do you think that it would be better to keep the parallel lives parallel where you're reading one, one term and the, and, and, um, the parallel, the second term, or does that matter even? I don't know that I would even do them a term apart. I think the best thing you can do is to read the lives in conjunction, do the Greek life and the Roman life, then the Roman life, because so often Plutarch has a comparison at the end, which sheds life on, sheds a lot of insight on both of the lives. But that's perfect world, right? When you're just mm-hmm. trying to work Plutarch into a course, like I did Plutarch for ancient history last year. Mm-hmm. It didn't make sense in the midst of doing the Persian Wars to then do to do Themistocles and then do the parallel. I don't think Themistocles actually is a parallel, but um, where it didn't make sense to do, you know, um, Greek and then Roman person who might be 200 or 300 years later. But in the perfect world, yeah, I would totally do Greek life, Roman life, and then the comparison. Okay. Yeah, we, we pretty much just have followed the schedule that Ambleside Online sets and have been thoroughly happy with that. I just, I know that there could be potentially more by doing the parallel lives and doing the actual comparisons. And uh, so I've been contemplating that. And I have to say, all this talk about Pericles, we haven't done Pericles yet. So I'm excited. That's, it's on the schedule for next year. So we'll get, I'll get to find out all these things that you guys have been talking about today. <laughs> Dawn, I'll chime in a little bit to your question. Um, We read it as parallels. We didn't read it differently. So I don't have the opposing side experience, but it was really valuable for our high school students who write persuasively. They used a persuasive essay um, format. Um, And so it was really valuable for them when they were writing their essays and working through their essays, uh, we use lost tools of writing. And so when they were making their charts and making all of those comparisons, it was extremely valuable for them because it was very, very visible for them to be able to create those arguments. That's great, Lisa. I love that you said that because mimetic teaching is so important in classical education, having something beautiful and good, an example to imitate. And since, since they were, their assignment for writing was to compare, they had an example from which to follow. And I think that's critical um, in, in, in classical education. And um, you're right, Plutarch lends, it, lends perfectly to that, to, that, uh, to that model. I did love the year that we had Demosthenes and Cicero back to back. I mean, I thought that was, that was really profitable. So that's really good to hear, Lisa. I appreciate, I appreciate the feedback. Well, so um, for our listeners, just as we're kind of going to wrap up um, to our concluding question, can we um, sort of summarize which translations we've been talking? Because we've had a lot of things thrown out and my mind is kind of feeling like, okay, which translations are we recommending? So we can clarify this for our listeners. I would recommend the Dryden translation, but that my recommendation is almost entirely nostalgic and probably partisan. Um, there are probably better translations for younger ages, but the Dryden translation is fantastic. And I would go to my deathbed saying it's the best translation. Oh, why? It, it's wonderful. The language, the language approaches being Shakespearean. Um, just the language, the way Dryden translates is so good. Uh, mm-hmm. It's it's fantastic. Okay. 
um, I use the AO, the Ann White volumes. Um, she uses mostly North and sometimes she pulls in Dryden and sometimes she pulls in Clow um, just to give like Dryden translates it this way, Clow translates it this way. Um, it's my understanding that the North was what Shakespeare would have had. Is that, I, I think that's, I think that's true. Um, and so when we did Julius Caesar, the same for Shakespeare, we also did the Caesar life um, and that's often recommended. So yeah, that's what we use. We didn't focus too, too much on translation. I believe we use the modern library, the cloud version for our um, high school and for our younger students, we used the uh, Rosalie Kaufman, the yesterday's classics puts it out. Um, so the young folks pull tart. We loved it. We thought it was very lively and uh, not too overly simplified, but just approachable and beautiful. So mm -hmm. that's what we used. I'm a fan. <laughs> so that young folks Plutarch sounds like it would almost be likened up unto the um the um Shakespeare for children by um the Lamb, yeah. Mary and Charles Lamb. So a well yeah, done so. children's version. Yeah. Very well done. Mm -hmm. Okay. And Peach. So the uh in children's Plutarch that uh, that I grew up with and that that I used is translated by uh, by Gould. The middle school one that I use is Plutarch's Lives for Boys and Girls by Weston. And then in the high school, I use the North briefly when I'm connecting Julius Caesar to Shakespeare for for the language although most of the time my students struggle with that as a whole so the white uh, the i'm sorry the north translation in part the cloud translation uh in large part and then dryden again depending on the piece that i'm doing so in high school north cloud and dryden but primarily cloud okay mm -hmm. uh i would say by all of them and then clear, clear off the kitchen table and spread them out and say, how fascinating that these are all, you know, I wonder why they picked that word. And, uh, and, then, and, then, and then learn Latin, I guess. So, so that would be the order. Start, start with one that you can get into and, and, and just fall in love with, with it. Buy, buy a few more and, mm -hmm. and compare notes and then, and then try, to, try to get back to the original language so that we can preserve and conserve these things and, and keep passing it on. That's right. Say that My I Amazon. do also bring in a great deal of artwork. Uh, mm -hmm. There's so many famous paintings connected to these stories. Mm -hmm. And I have sometimes taken specific translations and said, all right, look at this translation and then look at this particular painting, whether it's a, a Perrin or it's a, a Moncio painting. And what inspired this particular painting? What would they have read? And that's always great fun to do. I do, I do that too. I bring in paintings. There's a site, the uh, Eclectic Light. Um, they've collected a bunch of classical art that has been inspired by Plutarch. I just dropped the link. Um, and uh, we use that a lot in our classes and compare how different, different artists have um, have done that. I actually make a booklet I print out and um, on the AO site, they have without all the notes and everything, just the text of the Anne books. So I print that out for my students and I usually throw in some um, paintings and a couple of maps 
um, and hand them a booklet and say, this is what we're reading this year. And, uh, and they can follow, they, can, they do the reading. I don't read, they read. Um, so yeah, the, the paintings, I, it, they're great. That's good. Trey, I love that you brought about, um, brought around the different translations all on the table. Uh, we didn't do that with Plutarch, but we did that with a lot of the other text. In fact, whenever we, whenever I suggest translations to my students, a lot of times I'm like, you know what, I'll, I'll just pick whatever translation you want, because I would really like for us all to have a different translation. Mm -hmm. And part mm -hmm. of the fun is going round table and just reading the different pieces and how they were translating, how those conversations about what translation is and how it comes through. So thank you for bringing that to light. Oh, that's a great idea, Lisa. I love that idea. Yeah, that's good. Well, I think we'll wrap up with our closing question, which we ask all of our listeners, which uh, the first question we um, ask is, what is a quote from a book that has had a huge impact on you? Or... What book do you wish you had read sooner in your life? So, Philip, we'll start with you. Uh, Plutarch on both counts. And so I've got a quote from Plutarch here that I'll read. Uh, it's from his life of Pericles. It's, but virtue, by the bare statement of its actions, can so affect minds as to create at once both admiration of the things done and a desire to imitate the doers of them. The good, goods of fortune we possess and would enjoy those of virtue we long to practice and exercise. We are content to receive the former from others, the latter we wish others to experience from us. Moral good is a practical stimulus. That's great. Thank you, Don. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to go with Charlotte Mason's volume six. I was an education major and uh, was mistaught so many things in college, and I wish I had um, had her correction much much earlier in my in my career in my life. That's mine too. <laughs> so, Lisa? I have two that are very different. One, what I wish I would have read earlier was the Iliad. It is probably my favorite, favorite text ever. Um, so that, and read all the translations, <laughs> but especially Peter Green. Um, so that, and then my quote is actually from Simone Weil which she says, school children and students who love God should never say, for my part, I like mathematics, I like French, I like Greek. They should learn to like all these subjects because all of them develop the faculty of attention, which directed toward God is the very substance of prayer. And so in terms of Plutarch, you know, students and educators and headmasters and whomever, I just want to encourage you to include Plutarch because they should never say, this is too hard. I don't like Plutarch because it's not about Plutarch even. It's about directing them toward God and towards study and towards focus and attention and prayer. So, um, and that is from Waiting for God on the Right Use of School Studies for Essay. Thank you. Peach? So um, I love Stratford Caldecott. He's just died recently. And uh, I love his book, Beauty for Truth's Sake, as well as Beauty in the Word, Rethinking the Foundations of Education. Those two, they're both very thin books, wonderful books. And my quote is from Beauty for Truth's Sake. It says, music, architecture, astronomy, and physics 
the physical arts and their applications demonstrate the fundamental intuition behind the liberal arts tradition of education, which is that the world is an ordered whole, a cosmos whose beauty becomes more apparent the more carefully and deeply we study it. By preparing ourselves in this way to contemplate the higher mysteries of philosophy and theology, we become more alive, more fully human. This beautiful order can be studied at every level and in every context, from the patterns made by cloud formation or river erosion to that of the leaves around the stem of the most obnoxious weed, from the shape of the human face as it catches the light, or the ways keys are ordered in a concerto by Bach, to the collision of stellar let nebulae and particles in an atomic furnace. Yet at the same time, while studying and appreciating the intuitions that lay behind the cosmological sciences of the quadrivium, we cannot today but simply revert to the worldview of the Middle Ages. We have seen that the questions that arise truly, sorry, listening, truly bring us to the complete wonder and understanding of our humanity. And how, how wonderful it is that this, that this voice from the past, Plutarch, uh, has brought us all together on this call. And how wonderful it is that we have him to, to hand on to our children and also to our fellow educators. And, and may he be continued to be read in homes and schools everywhere. Thank you for listening. You can get involved in a few ways. There's a Facebook page where we actively discuss the ideas around classical education. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash classical education. And if you want to help offset our production costs, you can support the podcast financially by going to www.classicaleducationpodcast.com forward slash support. As the great artist and educator John Ruskin once said, well, my friends, the final result of the education I want you to give your children will be in a few words this. They will know what it is to see the sky. They will know what it is to breathe it. And they will know best of all what it is to behave under it as in the presence of a father who is in heaven. 